boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales, and with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. This week we'll be exploring the secret lives of our feathered friends. We'll be finding out how the cuckoo gets away with leaving other birds to bring up its young and how different birds try to avoid falling prey to its parasitic ways. Also, we'll meet the rather intelligent birds who solve problems, make tools and generally show us how smart they are. These are the rooks and they've been seen to prove one of Aesop's fables to be true. Plus, Mira visits the new Darwin Centre at the Natural History Museum in London, where you can see the amazing exhibit. It really is an incredible place, and you can pester the scientists while they work. And in this week's news, there's a new discovery about the genes involved in prostate cancer, how biofuels affect the oceans, robotic surgery, the robot doctors are coming, and why drinking green tea could help you grow strong bones. That's all to come on today's Naked Scientists. If you want to get in touch, we're waiting for you right now, so... Get in touch with your questions, your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address, as always, is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. First up this week, the world of science news. Now, are you a tea drinker, Kat? I'm not really, actually. I gave up caffeine a while ago. and oh, good for you. Uh, I don't really, don't really go for tea. I'm a big decaf coffee drinker. Though. Well done. Well, that's very good of you. But I am a major addict. I go through phases, but right now, plain old builder's tea, white, white no sugar, as we call it here, uh, builder's tea here in the UK, that's my cup of choice, and I just can't get through the day without it. But if you want a health boost in your daily cuppa, then you could do a lot worse than reach for a swig of green tea. And that's apparently one of the world's most popular drinks, and we can understand why because there's lots of people in China out there and other Asian countries who drink that great tea. Anyway, alongside lots of other potential health benefits that come with drinking green tea, we know already that it could be quite good for our hearts. It has anti-cancer properties as well. But it now seems that compounds found in green tea could be good for our bones as well. Ping Chung Leung and colleagues from the Chinese University of Hong Kong have found have been looking at the effects of um, tea on bone cells. and They've been looking in particular at a trio of compounds called catechins and they're found to occur naturally in green tea. And by exposing cultures of bone-forming cells from rats, those are called osteoblasts, to these green tea compounds, these researchers have found that the rate of bone growth and the rate of bone strengthening were significantly increased within just a few days. What's actually going on in the bone cells? Do we have any idea how these green tea extracts are actually helping to promote bone growth? Um, Well, it seems that some of the bone-boosting effect comes down to the activity of a key enzyme and that's promoting bone growth. And one particular green tea compound called epigallocatechin, or EGC, led to an increase in this particular enzyme activity by 79%, which is really quite a big switch-on of that enzyme. Um, It also increased levels of bone mineralisation in these cells, and that's really strengthening those bone cells, making them hard um, with calcium carbonate uh, to make them strong. So EGC also suppressed the activity of cells called osteoclast cells, and they actually weaken and break down old bone and that's part of the natural process of bone remodeling as you go through um, go through life you may remember last week on the naked sciences we had a very bony kitchen science but um if what we really want to know i mean this was work was it done in the lab is it going to work on humans if i drink green tea I don't like it, but if I did, would it be doing me any good? I do like it, actually. A cup of jasmine tea is really my thing. But no, you're quite right. Um, 
this is obviously, these were studies done on rat bone cells, so we need to know if this transfers to, uh, first of all, whether it transfers to human cells. Um, but then also, yes, is it going to be any good if we actually drink tea rather than bathe our bones in tea extract, which we're not going to do? And the research paper at the moment um, doesn't really point out um, really how much the doses of catechins compare in their study to a normal cup of tea, um, or whether you would have any effects if you'd have it, the liquid passing through your di- digestive system. So those are questions that we still need to answer. But earlier studies have already hinted that there could be some real benefits of drinking tea. For example, it has been shown that postmenopausal women who are regular tea drinkers tend to also have denser bones. Obviously, there's a lot of things going on there. That's not a causative um, solution. You know, we don't know it's necessarily tea that's making their bones denser, but it's interesting that that's what's being shown. And I think this study does certainly point towards maybe a new way of approaching bone conditions and treating them, things like osteoporosis, and maybe the activity of these catechin compounds could be harnessed in some kind of medicine of the future. And I think it does go to show that sipping a daily cup of green tea is not just tasty and refreshing in my view anyway, but maybe, just maybe, it's doing us some good as well. Well, from the world of tea, we take a sharp left turn and end up in the world of cancer research. And um, research that's literally just published about five minutes ago. So this is real hot stuff here on The Naked Scientists. Uh, scientists at the Institute of Cancer Research and the University of Cambridge, funded by Cancer Research UK, have made another important addition to our knowledge about the genes involved in prostate cancer. Now, they've discovered nine new gene variations that can increase the risk of the disease by about threefold. And they've published their work in two papers in the journal Nature Genetics today, right now. And (laughs) this is as exciting as it gets, I tell you. And uh, some of these new genes could actually be potential targets for future cancer drugs, which is really important. That's really exciting. But what did they do in this research? How did they go about looking at these particular genes? Well, this is another example of genome-wide association studies. We've seen quite a lot of these coming out lately for things like cancer, heart disease, um, these kind of illnesses. And they're very, very big studies. You need to have an international team of scientists and lots of expensive kit to do this. But what they do is scan through the DNA of thousands of people using the latest uh, genetic technology and what they're doing is searching for tiny differences in the DNA sequence between people with cancer and people without the disease. So eventually they narrow down their search to just a few small regions and they can pinpoint the genetic variations that might increase the risk of the disease. Now in the first study the researchers looked at DNA from almost 38,000 men, we're talking big numbers here, and they trawled through over 43,000 SNPs. These are single nucleotide polymorphisms and they're tiny little variations in our DNA. And they discovered seven regions of DNA that are linked to prostate cancer risk. And two of them are in genes that could actually be promising targets for future treatments. That's really great. And you said there was another study as well this week in in Nature Genetics? Yes. So in the second study, the scientists homed in on a region on human chromosome 8. And that's previously been linked to, to prostate cancer risk. It's a real hot spot in the genome for these genes and uh, they did some really detailed investigation and they found again two new variations involved in prostate cancer and now it brings to a total of more than 20 regions of the genome that are linked to prostate cancer risk. So these are genes for cancer and if a man inherits a particular variation then is he definitely going to get prostate cancer? Well that's not the case and we're talking about really subtle variations in our DNA the kind of variations that make us unique you know you have curly hair I have wavy 
baby hair. Um, and there are variations in our genes that subtly affect our risk of cancer. Um, so you can think of genes really like a hand of cards. Some people get really great cards. Uh, it means they're very unlikely to get cancer. Some people have really terrible cards and it means they have a very high risk of cancer. But most of us have, you know, a spread of something some good cards, some bad cards, somewhere in the middle. And then it depends how, through our lifestyle, how we play our genetic cards. So we need to do more research into these new variations. But certainly it could tell us about um, maybe who needs more screening or surveillance for prostate cancer. Or, and this is a really key problem in prostate cancer, who's most likely to have an aggressive cancer or one that's just slow growing and needs monitoring. And again, it could point to, to pave the way for new treatments in the future. Well, let's hope so. That's great news indeed. Well, I'm going to take things back to the world of the ocean again. And oh, you. I know. <laughs> but it's not all good news again, I'm afraid. Debate continues to rage on as to how we're going to solve the ongoing problem of global emissions of carbon dioxide from burning things like fossil fuels. Well, a new study has just come out and it's shown that if we're not careful, then growing crops to turn into biofuels could spell disaster in the sea, which is something we might not expect to see at all. And that's because it could very much much worsen so-called marine dead zones where wildlife is wiped out by depleted levels of oxygen. Now this sounds like quite a bummer really because I think a lot of people are pinning their hopes on biofuels but how do fuels grown on land affect the sea I and mean, what's the le- connection? Well basically these marine dead zones as they're called they're an increasing phenomenon unfortunately around the globe we've talked about them before on The Naked Scientists and they happen because fertilizers that are applied to agricultural land and of course that includes biofuel crops as well so that's where they come in if a lot of those will tend to end up washing into coastal waters and there they trigger blooms of algae usually it's tiny little phytoplankton or sometimes things like seaweeds will grow in abundance they will eventually die and sink down to the seafloor where bacteria break them down and that uses up all the oxygen in the water now because of this every year a huge and growing area of the sea becomes anoxic it has no oxygen and that's really unable to support wildlife in 2008 the dead zone in the northern Gulf of Mexico was more than 27,000 square kilometres. And that is huge. That's nearly half the size of England. It's the size of the state of Massachusetts. It's enormous. Now, Christine Costello and W. Michael Griffin and colleagues from the Carnegie Mellon University and from the University of Pittsburgh in the US have developed a computer model of that particular area of the the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, and they've used it to predict what might happen if more biofuels are planted. Now, biofuel crops, that is. And that's something that the US Federal government is really pushing for in an attempt to tackle climate change and they actually want to see 36 billion gallons of biofuels produced by 2022. Now if that happens it could well mean that achieving another target which is to curb the growth of that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is going to be virtually impossible. Oh catch 22. I know exactly it's really it's it's bad news in some ways but Costello and Griffin what they did was they basically tested various scenarios for how this desired um, increase in biofuel production might be achieved, including using different types of crops. But even if they used grasses, which don't need so much uh, fertiliser, you still see this massive increase in nitrates flooding into the Gulf of Mexico. That sounds really nasty. I mean, it, should we just give up on the whole idea of, of crop biofuels? Is, is there it's, anything it's, that can be done? It's really, it, that, it, exactly. So I think the importance of a study like this is just to really remind us that we've got to think about all the different consequences, the environmental consequences of something like growing crops for biofuels. We talk a lot about its food and so on, and that's important. But also, what other effects is it going to have? But the authors do point out that there are various options available for reducing the impacts of nutrient runoff 
runoff from agricultural land. And that includes things like planting strips of vegetation along the edges of rivers. That's called a vegetative buffer strip. And uh, as well as constructing areas of wetland. And also, if you're very careful about how fertilisers are applied, then that can also reduce the amount that gets washed off. Because we don't want that anyway. That's useless if it all gets washed away and it's not being used to fertilise the crops. So these are the sorts of things I think we should be promoting, especially if but if crop-based biofuels are to have any hope at all of being a solution, a green solution for the future. I've got a vegetative buffer strip. It's called my sofa. You <laughs> vegetate on it. Anyway, our final story in the news uh, from me is one about robot doctors. I love this story. I'm scared. <laughs> As robotic surgery is really taking off, you can uh, have surgeons in one country doing keyhole surgery on patients in another country, it's absolutely amazing. And there's robotic surgery for things like prostate cancer. It's really, really starting to happen now. But the problem is, is that people have been making all these robots, making all these systems in different countries. Uh, but the problem is, is that they don't really all talk to each other. So now uh, researchers are working on new technology to improve compatibility between robot systems that would allow doctors to use the internet to operate surgical robots all over the world. It does sound like really sci-fi stuff. I mean, is this really going? Is this really going to happen? And what are they doing here? Well, the, it's, the researchers have developed a new piece of software called the Interoperable Telesurgical Protocol, and it basically standardises the way that robots work over the internet. So it means they can all talk to each other, um, and you know, the, the software that's operating them and the computers that are operating the robots can talk to all different sorts of robots. And to test it out, they have nine research teams from around the world using. Uh, the technique to operate different robots around the world. And in most cases, it all worked. They could operate pretty much any robot they wanted to. And uh, this was uh, carried out in locations in the US, in Europe and Asia as well. And uh, it was really impressive because over 24 hours, they um, connected the robots over the internet at the different locations and they tested how it worked. And it's really important because... It now means that researchers can test out techniques, they can sort of test out robots all over the place and hopefully it'll all, um, you know, really, really start to go somewhere in terms of the research. But, you know, not very good if the internet goes Let's down. Let's hope it doesn't. <laughs> it's amazing the things that the internet can be used for, isn't it? Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Helen Scales and Kat Arney. And this week, we're looking up in the trees to share the secrets of our feathered friends. And don't forget, you can also listen to us online, anywhere in the world, or even out of this world. Hello, Second Life people. How are you out there? Well, coming up, we meet a group of problem-solving rooks who display a great deal of intelligence. And we explore the new Darwin Centre at the Natural History Museum in London. But first, it's time to turn our ears to behavioural ecology. How do animals interact with their environment to improve their lot? Well, it seems that cuckoos across the world have found ways of exploiting the nests of other birds. But not all hosts are so easily exploited. To tell us more about which birds know best, we've Rebecca Kilner from Cambridge University with us today in the studio. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Well, cuckoos, they are crazy creatures, really. But first of all, um, where do they live? Where do we find cuckoos? who's living in the world? Well, cuckoos are a member of a, a sort of super family of birds and there are about 140 species of them altogether. But it's really only 60 of the species that are well known and they're well known for their habit of stealing childcare from other species. So what they do is they lay their eggs in a nest belonging to another bird and they leave their poor victim with the hard job of bringing up their baby. And those brood parasitic uh, 
birds, as we call them, are scattered throughout the world. So we can find individuals um, representing this family um, on every continent. And they exploit the nests of all sorts of other birds as well. I take it there's lots of poor um, birds out there who are having to look after things that really are nothing to do with them at all, not their babies at all. That's right, yeah. So uh, individuals from all of the songbird family, really, can be found being exploited by cuckoos all over the world. It's a crazy thing to see. We sort of get pictures and, and footage on the television of, of a, a, a tiny songbird rearing this enormous cuckoo. Sometimes the size difference is just... It's almost comical, isn't it? It looks ridiculous. How... How do cuckoos go about being able to get away with this? How do they do this? Well, obviously the story starts when the cuckoo adds her egg to the host nest. And she does this very, very secretively. And we know best probably about the the European cuckoo or the common cuckoo, which um, exploits songbirds in Britain. And what we know is that she's incredibly secretive. It's very, very hard for even bird watchers to see cuckoos. It's certainly very hard for the host birds, the potential victims of the cuckoo, to see this uh, this uh, uh, malevolent stealer of childcare. So what they do is they lurk around potential host victim nests and then they, when the timing is right, once the host has started laying her eggs, they very quickly glide down to the host nest in the afternoon and they will add a single egg of their own to the clutch, having first removed one of the host's own eggs. And they do all this in 10 seconds. They quickly fly away again. So there's very little chance that the... Um, host bird will spot them at the nest. And they only take one of the other eggs out. They leave the other ones there and sort of hide their one egg between all the other ones that were Yes, that's right. So they might possibly take two eggs, but they never take every other egg from the nest. And the reason they they don't take all the other eggs is because it's been shown by experiment that if you reduce a clutch to a single egg, then the host will simply give up on the nest because it's no longer profitable. So it's in the cuckoo's interest to leave as many host eggs in the nest as possible. But she takes out one, um, presumably because it's more... uh, the incubation of, of the clutch is more efficient if uh, there aren't too many eggs in the nest. So by taking one out and adding her own, she keeps the, the clutch size, the number of eggs in the nest, constant. OK, and so the cuckoo's got her egg into this other nest. Um, what happens next? Presumably, if it works, then the, 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 uh, the host mother doesn't realise and father don't realise that they've got an in, in, uh, imposter um, what happens next? Well, so you, you hit on a, a very important point there. So it is possible that the host will realise they have an imposter egg right. in the nest. So, for example, in the reed warblers, which nest at Wickham Fen near Cambridge, roughly 20% of cuckoo eggs that are laid in the host nest are spotted by the host owner, the nest owners as foreign, and they throw them out. Um, but... So more often than not, the cuckoo gets away with it. And then presumably they eventually will hatch. What happens then? Yeah, so the cuckoo um, egg is incubated along with all the other eggs in the host nest. But the cuckoo egg will hatch possibly one or two days earlier than the host's own young. And then at this point, the, the cuckoo egg um, sets about, the cuckoo chick rather, it sets about instinctively killing off all the members of the host clutch. That, I've seen that on, the, on, the, on TV in a documentary, and that's extraordinary that it, it knows as well to, as soon as it hatches, that get rid of all the other eggs around me. And, yeah, that's right. It's, it's amazing. An, it's an extraordinary behaviour, um, and it's an instinctive behaviour. So it will basically, in response to any sort of pressure, on the small of its back, the cuckoo chick will walk backwards up the side of the nest and try and tip that whatever's pushing on its back over the edge um, and to destroy it. So you've just got a nest with a single cuckoo left in it? That's right. So in the, with the common cuckoo, within, say, 48 hours of hatching, the cuckoo chick has destroyed the host's own offspring and it is by itself in the nest. And then 
the by that stage the mother and father of the the of what they thought was their own child do they their offspring do they then just keep on feeding it as if it was their own offspring do they actually have any way of figuring out hang on this isn't what i'm this isn't what i expected to see coming out <laughs> <laughs> well no it's quite so it's quite remarkable the reed warblers that we can fend will carry on feeding the cuckoo chick um, and they feed the cuckoo chick at roughly the same rate as they would provision a brood of their own chicks and that's that is extraordinary but but are there other species that have um have figured out ways or evolved ways really isn't it of um of defending themselves against cuckoos presumably there must be quite a strong pressure to not allow a cuckoo to come into your nest because by that because you've really lost a whole breeding yeah. opportunity so how have we evolved how have they evolved ways of getting around that well so there are several different lines of defence that hosts can mount to defeat the cuckoo who's trying to steal the childcare. The first line of defence is that the host can mob the adult cuckoo as she lurks near the nest preparing to lay her egg. So if, she just screams and sort of tries to get them to... Yeah, in away. much the same way as birds would mob a predator, for yep. example, potential predator, they mob a cuckoo. But they have to have seen them in the first place to be able to do that. That's so, right, yeah. yes. So that's the first line of defence. Now, obviously, cuckoos can. we know that they can breach that line of defence because we know that cuckoos get their eggs into the nest. So the second line of defence that hosts can mount is to spot the foreign-looking egg in the nest. And so this in turn has driven the evolution of cuckoos that can lay mimetic eggs because they're much more likely to escape that line of So defense. it means they look very similar to the eggs of the, the host. That's right. They very closely resemble the host's own eggs. It's almost impossible to tell them apart. It's an extraordinary match. So does one species of cuckoo only go and parasitise one other species of bird or can they do different eggs? Do they have different tricks? Well, so there's a... The single species of the common cuckoo has split into genetically distinct host races and each host race can specialise on a different host species and it, they're recognisable by the fact that they lay different eggs appropriate to each host species. That's amazing. <laughs> that really is. So, so they can recognise, some species can recognise the eggs and presumably some can recognise this isn't my chick, this is, this is not what I was expecting to see, can they? Well, extraordinarily... It seems that the hosts of the common cuckoo can't do that. So we think this might be because their first two lines of defence are relatively robust. They're especially good at recognising foreign, foreign eggs added to the nest. And so because they've got these very um, secure initial lines of defence, they, they seemingly have no lines of defence at the chick stage. So if the cuckoo makes it to that point, then it's home and dry the cuckoo chick will so be So they fed. almost say, you know, we should be good at being able to figure this out early on and we're not going to worry about... By the time eggs have hatched, then we expect it to be our own. But yes, and the, the there's another constraint on the reed warblers as well, which is that their breeding season is very short. And so even if they were to give up at that point, it's very unlikely that they would be able to get another uh, brood produced that season. It really is just fantastic stuff. One final question just for now is, do birds that get parasitised, that get tricked, duped by these cuckoos, do they do it over and over again? Or do they learn a lesson and, and next time... They, you know, they, they're even more careful to not let the cuckoos come and lay in their nest. Or do you see reed warblers that every every season, every attempt at breeding, a cuckoo comes along and, and <laughs> takes away all, all of their efforts to, to continue their own species? Well, I can't speak for reed warblers, but um, I've studied a host species in Australia and I've seen one poor victim bird be struck three times in a row by a cuckoo. Oh, bad luck, isn't Very it? Very bad luck indeed, <laughs> yes. Well, that is fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. We were learning more about the wonderful world of cuckoos. So next time, if you hear a cuckoo calling, you could have a bit more of an idea of the crazy things that go on. 
And now it's time to join Mira Senthillingham at the new Darwin Centre, which opened at the Natural History Museum in London this week. It's an eight-storey cocoon that costs £78 million to build and will not only house the museum's insect and plant collections, but also aims to give visitors an insight into the working life of a scientist. So Mira went along to find out just how the centre plans on getting us excited about science. This week, I'm at the newly opened Darwin Centre at the Natural History Museum in London. Now, its structure is quite incredible because it's a giant white cocoon sitting inside a large glass box next to the museum's famous Waterhouse building. I'm inside this cocoon now, and with me is Paul Bowers, the public offer project director here at the Natural History Museum. So, Paul, tell me what the Darwin Centre is all about. Darwin Centre Phase 2 is the culmination of our sort of 10 15 year project of bringing science out into the public domain. The new building creates world class storage facilities for our collections that's 17 million insects and 3 million flowering plants. It creates research facilities for the 200 or so scientists that work on those in the Darwin Centre. And uh, for me, the most exciting part is to throw the doors open and make all of that accessible to our public. We have a journey around our spectacular cocoon where visitors will be able to see through windows, interact with interactive exhibits and talk to some of our scientists who are preparing specimens. And then on the ground floor, we have the Attenborough Studio, where we will be running a daily programme of Nature Live events, where the public and scientists can meet together and engage in dialogue about cutting-edge research. Now, you mentioned that it's all housed in a big cocoon, and we're inside this cocoon now, and it really is. You are just completely immersed with the science taking place here. Well, the cocoon is a quite a remarkable structure. I mean, it is symbolic for us of the scale and importance of our collections, but it's fulfilling a really functional job as well. The collections need to be held in a dark, controlled environment, and the cocoon does that. The cocoon is thermally insulating the collection spaces. The other aspect that we can do in the cocoon is create all of these windows over laboratories, over microscopy areas and our specimen storage areas. So the cocoon enables us to give people that sort of level of insight into the work that we do here. How is this benefiting scientists to be able to do their work with people looking at them? Because there's someone behind us now just through that window and I can just see them there working with samples. For our scientists, what's, what's really great is the research facilities. Having those research facilities created in such a way that they can discuss things with the public as they go through is just a really exciting part. And what about members of the public? How does it help them to have these windows into the life of a scientist? It's very unexpected. Most people don't realise that we have this many scientists working at the Natural History Museum. The other side of it is science is a massive part of our lives. So many issues of current importance in terms of climate change or biodiversity loss are really important issues facing all humans and we need to know more and understand more so that we can make good decisions about our future as individuals and through any political process. So it's really important for the museum to be able to show off how it's done and give people an insight into that scientific process. So you mentioned that visitors can just speak to the scientists as they're working with their specimens. How does that actually happen? Part of the challenge for us is balancing up the different priorities of the building. Um, we have to keep the specimens behind glass because they are at risk from being eaten by museum beetles. But we want to make sure that these conversations can take place. So what we've done is we've created an area, a little bit like a post office counter, where there are microphones and speakers and there are our curators working, preparing specimens. That's working with big Victorian plant presses, 
with pinning insects and preparing microscope slides, the public can simply use the microphone and ask the scientists what they're up to, why they're doing it, why it's important and so on. So one of the features of the Darwin Centre is to be able to talk to the scientists as they're doing their work. So I'm just looking through one of the windows now and I can see Gavin Broad. Now Gavin, what do you do here at the museum? I'm a curator in the entomology department, so I look after part of the collection of insects, particularly the parasitic wasps. And now I'm actually disturbing you a bit at work now, because you've got your microscope and various specimens in front of you. What are you doing here? I'm looking at some South American wasps that have been collected recently, in uh, particularly Ecuador and Peru, and I'm labelling them up and trying to identify them as best as I can. Now, the glass here is actually quite big, and so does it disturb you at all to know that visitors are looking at you or to be seen doing your work? Well, um, it's not actually as distracting as I thought it would be because uh, it's quite dark view outside. People just sort of walk past and you don't really notice them. But it's a really positive thing, I think, to be able to explain what we do. And our department has about 20 million specimens in it, in specimens of pinned insects. And we can sort of show what goes into each of these specimens and we want people to appreciate that we're not just about dinosaurs. You know, we do a lot of research into the natural world. I must admit, that was fun, spying on scientist Gavin Broad doing his work, and then also being able to satisfy my curiosity about just what he was actually doing. Now, what else is going on around here? Now, having fully wandered around this cocoon and gone deeper and deeper into the depths, I have to admit I'm in awe. So to find out more about what went into the design of what is now the tallest curved structure in Europe, I'm here with Anna Maria Indrio, one of the architects of C.F. Muller, the architects behind this design. Now, Anna Maria, looking around, this design seems like it would have been quite a challenge. Well, it was a big challenge because in the competition we were expecting to do an extension to a museum, a kind of exhibition building, But we discovered that the extension was made essentially of three elements. An archive, which was enormous big, a scientist working space, and the public offer. How did you go about facing those challenges and coming up with this design? Well, we discovered that the the item we were going to exhibit was very small. There were plants and insects. So how to communicate to to the people the huge size and the importance of this collection? So the idea of the cocoon, like a treasure containing this precious collection, was coming out of this. What do you think the main feature and best part of the design of this building is? The transformation of history because this is an old historic building which is very much introvert and built it as an introvert building to a modern new extrovert building connecting outside the inside and uh, history and space. That for me is so uh, nice for people. That was Mira Synthlingham at the launch of the brand new Darwin Centre in London, talking to Anna Maria Indrio from CF Muller Architects, and before that, entomologist Gavin Broad and Paul Bowers from the Natural History Museum.
Now, I've had some questions in on the phone. Um, Dominic from Newmarket says, how does skin scrub help with spots and greasy skin? Now, there are some people um, I know who would argue that it doesn't really, and you're best off actually not cleaning your skin too much because it, it sort of messes up the balance of it. But I should think that skin scrub helps to get rid of dead skin and some kind of surface grease and yuck and the, the things that block your pores uh, that, that cause spots. Um, but then some people might argue that it actually dries your skin out too fast and takes all the natural oils off it. So it's meant to help that way, but whether it really does is, um, is for discussion. And uh, we've had another question uh, in here for, for you, actually, Helen, about your news story from Giotti, who says, how about black tea? Because your story was about green tea. Does it have any effect on the bone? That's a good question. And I don't think we know at the moment because this study was about green tea. And the fundamental difference between green and black tea is that black tea is actually fermented. So it's probably got some different chemicals in there, almost certainly different things going on. So um, that remains a bit of a question mark, but maybe that's something they might look at in the future. And I think there are good things about drinking black tea as well. We've got another question here, tea-related, for you, Kat, which is, why does lemon make green tea go clear? I've never tried this myself, but apparently this is true. Um, I think there's probably two reasons for this. Um, the first one is is that maybe, well, definitely, the lemon is acidic, and it's, so it's affecting the pH of your tea. And it may be that it's causing uh, changes in the chemicals that are in your tea and making them change to a different colour. So, like, you can make indicator paper and change colour with... Uh, different acids or bases um, and I think also certainly down the south we have a lot of um, lime scale which is calcium carbonate in our water and it can make your tea cloudy so if you put in an acid it will help to dissolve the calcium carbonate in it so it makes it go clearer. There you go everything you wanted to know about tea and probably some things you never thought about too. <laughs> anyway we've looked into the parasitic lifestyle of cuckoos but now we move over to the corvid family of birds specifically the rooks now this group of birds have been long known for their intelligence when Aesop wrote his fables he wrote of the crow that raised water levels in a pitcher to quench its thirst and get at the water and now scientists at Cambridge University's subdivision of animal behaviour have been studying these rooks to find out just how smart they are now Mira Synthalingham went along to the aviary where this research was conducted to meet Dr Chris Bird Yes, that really is his name, to find out how he and his team looked into these brainy birds. We've been looking into um, the tool use of rooks. Now, rooks are a member of the corvid family, the crow family, and the crow family has been known to be really intelligent and probably the most intelligent of the birds. They have a really large brain-to-body size ratio. They're capable of doing some quite remarkable things with, with objects, um, using them as tools to solve particular problems. So knowing about this intelligence to do with rooks, you've been doing some interesting experiments with them to find out just how smart they are. Yeah, precisely. We've basically been giving them tool use experiments where they have to solve a problem that they've never seen before. When we're, we're giving them these problems, we're looking at whether they're able to solve them using an understanding of how the problem works and an understanding of how the tool works. When we're looking um, at their solutions, we're looking at what they do on their very first trial. So not whether they're solving it through trial and error, but whether they're solving it through insight into the problem. And basically what we've found is that they're capable of showing these insightful solutions to, to novel problems using tools. How have you actually gone about experimenting this? We've basically given them a, a variety of tests. In the first set of tests, we gave them an apparatus which had a platform on which a, a, a waxworm, their favourite food, was suspended. The birds couldn't reach that, but they could collapse the platform by dropping a stone down the tube. 
and they would select the right size and shape stone depending on the diameter of the tube. So they were really conscious of the properties of the tool that they were using. They were also able to solve that problem by using sticks. So they would use a stick to collapse a platform. They'd also modify the stick to make it able to fit into the tube. And they were also capable of, of metatool use, which is sequential tool use, using one tool to get a, another tool. We gave them a, a second set of experiments where they had a clear perspex tube, about 15 centimetres tall, with a small cardboard bucket in the bottom. And in that bucket was a, a couple of their favourite worms again. And we wanted to see whether they were capable of using a hook-like tool to extract the bucket and get at the worms. That's something which New Caledonian crows um, have been shown to do in the wild. They've been shown to use hook tools and even to manufacture hook tools in order to pull out grubs from holes in the trees. So we gave the rooks these experiments and found that they were just as capable of using a hook tool to extract the bucket. Not only that, but when you gave them a straight piece of wire, they would put the wire into a tube and make their own hook and then flip that hook round and use the hook to pull the bucket out of the tube, which is really quite remarkable. Now, you show me videos of them doing this, and it, it is actually quite impressive, because you can almost see them have this moment's thought to just think, OK, which is the right choice, and get their worms. Now, as well as all of this, you've also been doing some experiments to see if one of Aesop's fables are true. Yeah, that's right. Aesop um, had his fable called The Crow and the Pitcher, which was basically about a thirsty crow that couldn't find anything to drink apart from a small bit of water in the bottom of a pitcher jug. And the bird couldn't reach that water, so it went off and, and got some stones and put those into the jug to raise the water level up until it could reach it. Now, we wanted to see whether that was something which was in, within the possibilities of what the rooks could achieve. There was a report in the early 1980s about rooks in an aviary using a plug to form a pool of water. Um, and they would put in the plug during dry periods so that the, a pool of water formed and they could drink and bathe in it. So putting that together with the fact that they are capable of using tools, we thought, well, maybe they're capable of solving Aesop's task. So we gave them a problem that was analogous to Aesop's fable. We gave them, again, a clear perspex tube with a little bit of water in the bottom and a, a worm floating on the surface of the water which they couldn't reach directly. And we gave them a bunch of stones next to the tube. And we found that straight away they would put the stones into the tube and raise the water level up until they could reach the worm. Now, what I found particularly interesting about this story, though, was not only did they put the stones in the water to raise the level, but they actually also knew just how many stones they should put in. That's right. So they would add a number of stones before trying to reach the worm, which did suggest that they understood that they needed to raise the water level by a particular amount, and they didn't just try and reach the worm after adding each stone. So that really showed that they understood um, how the problem worked and the solution that they were trying to achieve. And so what has it actually taught you overall about their level of intelligence? It really emphasises to us that these birds are remarkably intelligent. They have really high levels of physical intelligence and that their intelligence is really quite general. And what I mean by that is that they haven't just evolved a specific ability for a specific ecological problem. So they haven't evolved tool use specifically for problems in their environment, but their intelligence is general enough and flexible enough for them to be able to transfer what they have learned in other contexts to new contexts like using tools. So how does this translate to rooks in the wild? So we use um, captive ham-reared birds because we need to know exactly what their previous experience is. And when we're giving them these problems, we know it's the first time they've seen these problems, and when they're solving them, we know that they're solving them through insight rather than trial and error learning. When you see 
corvids using tools in the world. So New Caledonian crows are the, the most habitual tool users. They're using tools because they need to. In New Caledonia, they don't have access to many types of food apart from the grubs in, in holes in trees, so that makes up a lot of their diet. Rooks, on the other hand, have access to all sorts of other food supplies. They eat lots of seed from agriculture. Um, they eat roadkill. They're carrying birds like lots of the other corvids. And they forage on, on human rubbish. All of those foods are sort of easy access foods for them. And they don't actually need to use tools to get to them. So rooks don't use tools in the world, not because they can't, but rather because they don't need to. And that really emphasises Aesop's moral to the thirsty crow, which was that necessity is the mother of invention and rooks only really solve the problems using tools when they actually need to. Now one thing this has all been compared to is the intelligence of great apes. So how how are you looking into corvid intelligence alongside ape intelligence? Well, basically lots of the experiments that we've done with the corvids um, researchers have also tried with the great apes. And we're finding that the corvids actually perform are much better than the great apes like the chimpanzees. So they're showing intelligence that rivals those great apes, which is remarkable considering they have such a smaller brain. The size of the brain of the corvid is, is about the size of a walnut. And they don't have an area of the brain which is typically thought to be the intelligent part of the primate brain, called the neocortex. So people for a long time thought, well, how can they be doing such intelligent things? Birds actually have a different part of the brain called the nidopallium, which probably evolved from the same area as the neocortex evolved from. And the birds are using that area to do a similar thing as the primates use the neocortex for. Now, the two areas have a really different structure, so it's interesting to see that, convergently, they've evolved intelligence using a radically different brain structure. It gives a whole new meaning to uh, calling someone bird-brained. And despite having very different brains, birds may be as intelligent as us great apes. And that was Chris Bird, haha, from the University of Cambridge, explaining how clever corvids are to our own Mira Senthillingham. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Helen and Kat. And now it's time for Kitchen Science, where Dave takes a trip down memory lane and thinks back to his schoolboy days and makes some stationery fly. For this week's Kitchen Science, Dave has decided to make something very unusual into a flying machine. Dave, what is it that you're making fly today? Well, this is a trick that I learnt when hanging around in classrooms when I shouldn't have done during break times when I was at school. All you need is a school protractor, yeah, one of the semicircular plastic protractors, one of the ones with a filled-in middle, not one of the ones with a hole in, that doesn't work. And you want to make sure there's no kind of protruding bits. Some of them have a little protruding lens in them. So you want to avoid that. Just a bog-standard, cheap school protractor. So a very simple piece of kit, really. A semicircle of plastic, effectively. Yeah, that's all you want. If you take the protractor, if you hold it so that it's the right way up and the straight edge is pointing forwards and try and slide it across the desk, look and see what happens. OK, well, let's give this a go. It shouldn't be too difficult. And, well, it stopped about three inches from my fingers. OK, that's sort of what you'd expect. There's quite a lot of friction between a desk and a protractor, so, yeah, it doesn't go very far. But now we're going to do something which is really quite beautiful. Turn it upside down. If you hold it so that the straight edge is pointing forwards and you hold it between your finger and, th- and your thumb so they're on opposite sides of the protractor, then slide your hand very close to the desk and then once your hand's moving nice and fast, gently let go of the protractor and see what happens. 
How high are we looking? Very close, as close as you can. Basically, get the front of it maybe three or four millimetres off the ground. Right, really very close to the desk. Okay, so my fingers are practically touching the desk. I'm going to slide forwards and then let go. Let's see what happens. It went all the way along a lab bench. It must have gone eight foot. Easily just slid along, and it's actually wedged itself under the lip of one of the sinks. That went a really long way. It probably would have gone twice as far if it hadn't hit the sink. Yeah, from my experiments as a child, we could get them to go maybe six or seven metres if you got it exactly right on a really nice flat lab bench. You do need a very flat table, ideally something made up with a plastic surface. If you've got a wooden surface, they tend to be too rough and doesn't work very well. So is this just because of the fact that there's no ink, there's nothing printed on that side, means it's smoother? We can test that by using the protractor upside down again, but this time with the curved end forwards. Okay, so we'll do exactly the same thing, but with the curve facing frontwards. Well, it's gone a lot further than when it did the right way up, but it's only gone three foot, maybe nowhere near as far as it did with the flat end facing forward. Yeah, that's right. And it's all to do with when you get it right, it's actually flying. Why is it flying? What's doing that? Well, if you look at the protractor very carefully, if you look at the straight edge, it's not quite perpendicular to the flat surface. It's actually slightly beveled. Why has it got this angle on it? Is that so that it's more useful as a ruler, perhaps? Might have some advantages for that. I think the real reason is it means you can get it out of the mould much more easily. (laughs) Okay, and a side effect of what is essentially an accident of manufacture means that you can make it fly, but how does it do that? Well, if the protractor's sitting upside down and it's very, very close to the table, as it moves forward, um, it's going to hit air. And because of that angle, it's going to, that air's going to get pushed downwards under the protractor. And because the air can't get out the front, because there's more air piling in there, the only new place it can get out is at the back or the sides. So that air will stay under the protractor for quite a long time, which will lift it up maybe a tenth of a millimetre, a couple of tenths of a millimetre, which is high enough for it not to hit anything on a very flat smooth surface and so it flies this is an excellent trick of making stationary fly but what does this really tell us about actual flight in the real world well when a plane flies normally the way it stays up is that it pushes air downwards you get an equal opposite reaction which means the air pushes the plane upwards and it flies now when a plane is flying very very close to the ground of an altitude of less than its wingspan say When it pushes air downwards, that air hits the ground and that air compresses. That means that the pressure is higher under the wing than above it, so you get extra lift for no extra increase in drag. So because the air can't escape anywhere else, it just increases in pressure and you get more lift out of effectively the same amount of air. But why don't planes use this all the time? For a start, it's quite difficult to fly at maybe only 20 or 30 feet off the ground because if you make any mistake at all, you hit the ground very, very quickly, and so it's quite dangerous. And the other thing is it doesn't work very well over land because land isn't flat, so you've got to, to be able to fly 10 feet off the ground all over the place. It means hedge hopping and dodging power cables and all sorts of scary things. Various people are looking into this, and the Russians built some incredible examples of this during the Cold War. They were called the Kranoplans. They built planes, basically, which weighed up to 500 tonnes. They'd fly maybe 10, 15 feet off the ground. They used about an eighth of the amount of fuel of a normal plane. So a risky way of doing things, but a very efficient way of doing things. But do we see this in nature? It's all well and good in technology. Well, yeah, if you've ever watched a swan taking off... It sort of struggles incredibly hard and just about gets into the air and then it spends a good 10, 15 seconds flying at maybe only two feet off the water until it eventually picks up enough speed. 
The reason for that is the first time it takes off, it's flying in ground effect. It needs to get up a lot more speed before it can fly normally at higher altitudes. Fantastic. Well, who'd have thought that a protractor, an educational tool in itself, could actually teach us all sorts of things that it was never intended to do? You can catch a video of Dave's amazing flying protractor on thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, and we'll be back with more experiments very soon. Thanks, guys. So the shape of the protractor makes it glide across smooth surfaces, floating on a bed of air. Much more fun than using it for maths. If you've had a go at any of our experiments, do get in touch. The email address, as always, is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we've had a question on the phones from Irene Cranwell, who wants to know how do cats purr? Now, there isn't really a special purring organ in a cat. It's simply a very fast movement of their voice box. So it's fast twitching of the muscles in their larynx, which rapidly kind of uh, flap up and down something called glottis. That's sort of some little flaps inside your throat and it causes air vibrations as you inhale and exhale. And interestingly, a fact for you is that tigers, lions, jaguars and leopards can only purr when they're breathing out. And how lovely, the idea of a tiger purring. We've also had a question here from Durgesh who wants to know, where does the energy come from to pump the heart? I think that's one for you, Kat. Now, this is a really good one because basically it's the same energy that we use for all our metabolism. It's the energy created by eating fuel, um, metabolising the food that we eat, turning it into energy in the form of ATP within our cells and generates energy. Um, but actually, the stuff that makes the heartbeat is electrical impulses from our nerves and then the electrical impulses in the muscles. And Interestingly, you can take muscle cells out of the heart, you can grow them in the lab, and they'll still beat within, uh, within the lab um, because basically you have this kind of feedback loop that just keeps them beating, but they get all out of rhythm and you need the nervous energy, the nerve impulses, to get them all beating together. Be still my beating heart, absolutely. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and with us in the studio this week is Rebecca Kilner from the University of Cambridge, and we're talking all about birds, and in particular about cuckoos and all the terrible things, well, I think very clever things that they get up to, to steal the childcare from other birds. And we've actually had one birdie question in here, which we're going to throw Becky's way, which is um, from Jessica, and she wants to know, why do some birds mate for life? And she describes how she doesn't really see what the advantage of there if um for pairs of birds to stay together rather than going off and having lots of different mates what do you think about that Becky? um well she's quite right to highlight that we don't really understand why there might be an advantage because there we i don't think we do i don't think there's a consensus on in the scientific literature on this but there are a couple of good ideas and the general theme is that if it takes two to rear um babies effectively then you stick together with the one that you already know so that might be the case for example if nest sites are in short supply and it takes two of you to defend the site then it's better to stick with the teammate that you've got than to change for the next season similarly if you're feeding your chicks on complex food for, that is hard to forage for it's better to stick with an experienced bird than to try your luck with a potentially naive individual I mean, presumably, yeah, there must just be some advantage, otherwise we wouldn't wouldn't see that actually happening. And it happens in some birds, but, but not in all. And uh, I was also wondering, all this talk about cuckoos um, being able to usurp the, the, uh, the skills of other birds to help them rear their babies for them, do other animals do something similar, is it, or is it just cuckoos that do this? No, you're quite right. It's not just confined to the birds, and that's because universally across the animal kingdom, providing childcare is costly. So that means there's a tremendous incentive for individuals to steal childcare from other individuals. And we know that that happens in fish, for example. There's a catfish that steals parental care um, from fish that brood their eggs and fry in their mouths. So it 
takes care to get its host to swallow its fertilised egg and then the catfish develops within the mouth of the host fish and it eats all the other eggs and fry in there and grows spikes so that the host doesn't swallow it and then finally is spat out when it's completed development. Uh, <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> there are also some equally horrible insects that steal um, parental care from ant colonies. So, for example, the cuckoo butterfly is so named because it induces ants to pick up its caterpillar and carry it back to their colony where they treat it like a giant member of their own colony and they carefully nurture it for um, between 11 months and two years until it's grown large enough to pupate and then it becomes the adult butterfly. So, yes, it's widespread in the animal kingdom. And just a really quick one. Um, we were talking earlier about the various strategies that animals have uh, to recognise when they've been parasitised by a cuckoo. Um, but what happens when a bird kind of looks at their, uh, their chick and goes, hang on a sec, you're not mine? Um, when birds do actually recognise that they've got a cuckoo, what happens? Yeah, so there are some, there are, we didn't talk about this earlier, but there are some host species that are confined to Australia, as far as we know at the moment, who can recognise the cuckoo chick in the nest. And what happens here is that uh, recognition typically takes place four days after hatching, and the birds simply stop feeding the chick in the nest, even though it's alive and well and healthy and begging for food. Something happens that makes them realise it's not their own, and they give up on the chick and they take the nest apart, even though the chick is still sitting in there and still alive, and they build a fresh nest next door. And eventually the cuckoo chick starves to death and the meat ants move in and dismember the corpse and carry it back to their own nest. Absolutely brutal. And it, just rounding up this whole idea of cuckoos and what they do, it does seem quite extraordinary um, that you go to such an effort to have babies and, to, and you think looking after them is very important and to trust that to another animal seems really quite bizarre, doesn't really make so much sense. You're obviously putting a lot of trust in, in the host um, animal to, to look after your babies well, aren't you? Yes, that's right, you're leaving them with the responsibility of bringing them up but then at the same time you're avoiding all the costs that they incur in rearing children. So it, it makes sense that these parasites have evolved. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. We've learnt so much about the wonderful world of cuckoos. And now it's time for the question of the week with the lovely Diana O'Carroll. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Well, this week I've been fumbling around for the answer. My name is Simon Kappa. Fingerprints are very useful for identifying people. But what was the original function of fingerprints? Before the days of detectives, why did we need all these silly ridges on our fingers? I'm Dr Roland Emos from the University of Manchester and I'm in the Faculty of Life Sciences here. Well, the answer, I'm afraid, is that no-one truly knows. The most obvious idea is that they roughen our fingers to increase the friction. But we've done some tests here in Manchester and we found that, in fact, the fingers actually behave rather like car tyres. And because the fingerprints actually reduce our contact area with a surface, they actually will actually reduce friction, just like the grooves in car tyres in a wet weather tyre reduces the grip of a Formula One car. Another possibility, which must say I favour, is that the ridging could actually help to prevent blister formation because the pattern will allow our skin to have much greater compliance and so that can help to reduce the shear stresses around the edge of our contact zone. And the reason I believe that is that if you ever do DIY tasks, what you tend to find is that the only bits where you get blisters is the bits not on your fingerprints or wherever the big pattern of your palms, but in areas where there aren't any prints. Well, of course, there's no doubt that one of the roles of fingerprints must be to improve tactile discrimination. 
because rubbing your finger over a surface, when it hits the rough projections, they seem to help to detect the vibrations. And so it is likely that one of the roles of fingerprints is to improve touch discrimination. But that can't be the main function because the soles of our feet, the palms of our hands also have fingerprints. So that must be just a secondary function. Fingerprints may be there to reduce blistering when hanging around in trees or to create vibrations from the items we touch. And this heightens our sensitivity in our fingers. Now, on the forum, both JNA and Discovery Dave said that fingerprints help to improve our touch sensitivity, so they may be right there. And Nizzle said that fingerprints are probably helpful for usefully gripping items around the house like doors. But I can say my fingerprints are very good for giving me calluses when I play that <laughs> I was going to say, I saw you checking your fingers out there. Um, well, next week we'll be tackling a cartilaginous question. My name is Aaron Santos. I'm a physicist working in the chemical engineering department at the University of Michigan. And my question is this, if blood comes from bone marrow and sharks are cartilaginous fish, then where does a shark's blood come from? How do sharks make their blood? There's not always just one right answer, so help us to answer this question of the week by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can use the forum, which is thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And that was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. She'll be back next week, but in the meantime, it's available as a standalone podcast on the web at thenakedscientist.com slash question of the week. Well, that's just about all we have time for this week on our cuckoo bird-friendly show. So many thanks indeed to Rebecca Kilner and Chris Bird from Cambridge University. Thanks also to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Mira St. Fillingham, Ben Valsler, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. Next week, we're taking a peek at researchers revealed Friday. September 25th is the first time anyone in Britain has been involved with the European Researchers' Night. And Ben, Mira and Dave will be in the Great North Museum in Newcastle for a night of fashion, music, comedy and science. Doesn't that just sound fantastic? They will be live in Second Life during the event and then we'll be bringing all the highlights in next week's show. So if you have any questions, you can write to us on chris at thenakedscientist.com with any questions at all. But for now, thanks very much for listening and see you next time. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Listener.